right, welcome along to the RT Soccer Podcast. Raf Giallo here, and I'm alongside Jim McMahon of RT Sport Online this week. And we, later on, we're going to be joined by journalist Jonathan Higgins and also former UCD Sheffield Wednesday and Shamrock Rovers midfielder Paul Corey to talk about different title races, the Women's National League, which is very much alive going into the final round of action this coming weekend. And then also the SSC or Tristy League Premier Division, where it looks like Shamrock Rovers have at least more than one hand on the trophy. And we'll talk about much, much more, including Liverpool a bit later on. But uh, Jim, we are joined by Lisa Fallon, from uh, who is mm. now joining us from the far-flung, uh, <laughs> far-flung parts of the world, all the way over in India. But uh, for Jim, for yourself, I suppose, uh, before we start on the Women's World Cup draw, uh, we're into the real meat of the season now in terms of our domestic competitions. We certainly are, Raf. And uh, in, if you, if you go to the men's competition, it's it's certainly coming down to. I mean, I think the results on Friday night uh, with Shamrock Overs winning and then Derry drawing um, it makes it a situation where it's very much that Shamrock Overs have one hand with the other hand, one hand firmly, and and the other hand on the on the trophy and uh obviously the situation tonight in Sligo could tell a lot as well I mean if if Sligo gets something from the game either a draw or win then it's it's over and all that I think on Friday night as well Raph there were plenty of goals in the Airtricity League uh men's you know like plenty of goals between the five in in, in Tala and then there was six up in Dundalk and there was four in Daly Mount then and then you had the first division as well which the Playoff situation has been sorted out there. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, things are coming to the boil. And uh, I think in the Women's National League as well, we have we, we have an equally uh, tight tight races uh, as well there as well. So it's going to be some finale there next weekend as well, uh, you know, between uh, Shelburne. At Lone, probably, uh, I think it would take you maybe some results, uh, unlikely results to go their way for them to, but it's good that both, both men and women's competition, because for the men, like we, we thought a while back that Shamrock Overs were going to win it maybe comfortably, but Derry, after a bit of a wobble mid season came back strongly and at least they made, you know, they've made a real good fist of it as well. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, shaken up to be, a, it, it could be a spooky weekend for some people on this holiday bank or on this bank holiday weekend coming up with Halloween. But uh, certainly football-wise, domestically, there is quite a bit to look forward to. Yeah, and then on Saturday morning, we got a better picture of what 2023's summer is going to look like for the Irish women's team, who, of course, are going to a first-ever World Cup. And the fixtures and the group draw, Ireland playing the hosts Australia in Sydney on July 20th, and then the Canadians, uh, who are the Olympic champions, in Perth six days later, and then finishing against Nigeria and Brisbane on July 31st. And Lisa Fallon is here to talk us through all of this. But Lisa, you're, as I said, in a far-flung place in India, at the moment but it's for the under 17s yeah yeah so we're we're here we're overdoing the um the technical tactical analysis of the women's under 17 world cup which is just about to go to semi-final stage so it's been really fascinating actually you know just off the back of the women's under 20 world cup in costa rica now being able to see the under 17s and seeing you know where the the best players in the world are at right now and what the best what world class looks like at under 17 level at under 20 level and where are the gaps now to get players up to that level as they develop over the next few years and then obviously having australia and new zealand the senior world cup next year is is fantastic you know and we get to do the same again with the men starting in qatar next month and then we have the under 20s in indonesia next year in men's and then the 
the men's under 17s in Peru. So it's really interesting, really busy. Um, but um, but yeah, like it's uh, it's hot here as well, <laughs> 32 degrees. So, um, but um, you know, but it's it the 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 games have been so so interesting, really interesting to see the style, the different styles of play, and you know the the game intelligence and the fitness of the players. Like it's just phenomenal. Like the the women's game really really has catapulted forward, and it's it we saw that in the Euros in in Euro twenty this summer um and again i think we'll see it drive on another level next year in, in australia new zealand but to see the young players that are coming through and i think we've probably seen in these two tournaments some players that will be starring for their senior teams um next year as well yeah and from an irish point of view obviously it was a dream come true to get to the to the finals tournament i mean never done before but uh you know while you know you can you can settle into a dream but now it actually does feel very real especially when you see uh, teams like australia canada nigeria coming out it's is it as tough a draw as they could have got i think uh, look i think there's probably one or two other groups that could have been slightly tougher i think we wouldn't have wanted group e um, I don't think Vera would have wanted USA and Netherlands in the same group. So I think, you know, that was probably the one group she wouldn't have wanted. But having said that, I think it is, look, they're all tough groups. When you look at part one and two, it was, you know, the, if there was one team you wanted, it was probably New Zealand to come out of part one. But um, Australia, Canada um, and Nigeria is a tough group. But I think, I really believe there's nothing to fear in this. We know Ireland played Australia, you know, not that long ago in Dublin in a friendly and won that game. Um, and that was probably the game that was the catalyst for the change in the mentality and the belief and, and the confidence in the team after a number of games against higher level opposition. And um, that was the first team really that Ireland got the result against and you know that that was a strong Australia team that played that day Sam Kerr was there got very frustrated Ireland got the game plan right and it worked and I think Ireland will take a lot of confidence from that I think it's probably a game that Australia wouldn't have wanted um, and then of course you have Canada who were the Olympic the reigning Olympic champions Canada a very interesting story in that competition I think they only won four games en route to winning it because they they won a couple of games on penalties um, but again their game plan came from a very resolute four four diamond two um, system which was really interesting to, to observe um, and they've really you know they were really effective in that competition they beat the USA um, for the first time in their history as well so that's a really good Canada team and then Nigeria of course um, you know I've, I've actually seen their under 20s and their under 17s their under 17s actually knocked out a really good on a USA team in the quarterfinals of this competition here. So I think we've possibly seen a couple of players that we've seen from these tournaments going into the Nigeria team, but the Nigeria are a really explosive counter-attacking fast team. They like man marking, um, you know, it'll be a very open game. Um, so, but a really different challenge to, I suppose, the more structured approaches from Australia and Canada. So really, really different type, different level of opposition as in, but Nigeria are a good team and they will cause problems. So I think this is a group that you can really see teams taking points off each other. Um, and I think that favours Ireland. I think there's no team there that we should really fear. I think they're tough games, but I think there's certainly games that Ireland can can get points from um, and possibly get out of the group. 
Yeah, the the margins are a little bit harder though, obviously, than the last World Cup because of the expansion to thirty two. So that makes it, you know, if it was a twenty fourteen tournament, would it be, you know, it probably would have played in Ireland's favor. But in this case, it's obviously thirty two, so only the top two go through. But as you said, probably nothing to fear though. Yeah, absolutely, and and that's what's that's what I think is interesting about this group because Australia will also go in like the pressure will be on. Australia for that first game they're the host nation playing the hosts um, on their own patch there's going to be a massive crowd I would expect there'd be a really big Irish crowd at that game too um, and it might not feel as home a game for the Australians as it might have been had they been playing anybody else because I think there'll be a huge Irish contingent and Australian Irish contingent in 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 that game um, at that match so um, and the, there's going to be a massive amount of pressure on Australia too to go and win because you don't want to lose lose your first game in the group that's you know it's it's a little bit more cat and mouse when you're in tournament football about how you plan and where you can get your points and, and that's so often the key is not to lose your first game but certainly if you can win it it's massive um and and i you know ireland caused australia real genuine problems that day and australia will know that now listen australia in a friendly in tala versus Australia in the World Cup opener in um, Sydney are two will certainly be two different entities. However, they will be under a lot of pressure. Um, and it's a I think it's a great game for Ireland to, to open up with. Sorry, Lisa, I'm just thinking, you know, when you look at the tournament and you look at groups, you automatically go to, well, if we finish first and second, then we'll be playing who? Um, I think we could end up playing England if we finish second in our, I'm assuming they top their group. So, I mean, you know, if ever there was a, you know, a, a goal to get out of the group, you know, I mean, to, to, to be able to play England, obviously. Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, you look at the men's tournaments, Euro 88, first mm. game against England. Uh, you look at Italia 90, played England. So, mm. um, you know, it's almost not really a, an Ireland team in a major championship if you don't play England at some point. So, um, but listen, I mean, for Ireland, uh, look, I don't think they'll be looking ahead to that. Um, you know, you'll certainly do your preparation, but um, but realistically, this one is all about focusing on, on the group games. Um, you can't, if you start looking at what might happen when you yeah. come out of the group, you're taking the eye off the ball. And listen, with Vera and Tom and Andy Holt, the analyst, and and yeah, the the goalkeeping coach. Listen, they will focus on getting out of the group first and foremost. And mm -hmm. you know, if you can get out of the group, then you you deal with what comes next because you can over plan. Um, like you, you will certainly know who you're likely to face, yeah. and you can have a bit of work done. You would certainly have a bit of work done on each team that you could potentially face, so that you're not starting from scratch. But again. That you're going to be looking at that pre-tournament and what a team looks like in tournament will be quite different often to what happens, um, you know, in the pre-tournament to what happens in the tournament can be quite different because there, it's just tournament football is a different animal. Mm. Um, you know, the stakes are higher, the, the, the level of performance and realistically most teams going into this competition will be watching each other back. Um, their most recent games are going to be friendlies, preparation games, where you're not going to necessarily give a huge amount away either. So, um, so yeah, but um, no, I think, listen, they'll, 
it'd be great if we got to play them at, at some stage, but like realistically, they'll focus just on the teams that they have to get out of the group um, and, and do the job to get out. And, and that'll be, I would imagine that'll be the focus. I think that'd be more for the media speculation yeah. and the potentials yeah. and what about this and that, you know, the colour as we call it. But um, yeah, I think, um, yeah, I think they'll just rightly focus on what they've got to do um, because I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, see England not topping their group either. Yeah. I think they've got obviously, a fairly good group. Obviously, as well, Lisa, you know, Vera talked uh, after the draw on Saturday. I mean, I'm sure she's happy with the squad that she has at the moment, but she did mention about if there were any other players out there who happened to have an Irish passport. I mean, obviously, she will be looking to maybe strengthen, obviously. I mean, to, to look, to, if she can, if, if there are players out there. Are there players out there? Are, are there any players that we should be looking at at, at the moment that, might, that we could get to declare? Yeah, like I think, I mean, like you look at Lily Ag, Lily Ag is mm. a perfect case in point. You know, Lily has Irish grandmother down in Cork in Cove and, and Lily had thought about it for many a year and it's only now quite late in Lily's footballing career that she's come into it. and she's been a really important player for Ireland in, in the latter stages of the campaign. So um, I think there's, and I think it was interesting that Vera said that she was getting emails from players that suddenly had Irish um, heritage, which can happen too. But I think, you know, look, there, she will certainly show loyalty to the players that are there. And if there is a player that might improve the squad, um, that they will look at those options as well, um, because you want to give um, the best chance of, of progressing in the tournament. Um, but, um, you know, I think she will show loyalty um, to the players that got her there. And then, you you know, there's even still, there's potentially players to come back who've suffered injuries who weren't available in the last camp as well. And mm. a lot of really good young players coming through as well. So it's that's what's brilliant about the Irish squad right now is the level of depth that's there. We've just never had that level of depth before. And it really carried the squad through um, games. You know, I mean, you look at the injuries that Ireland suffered for the last two games, you know, the likes of, Rusha Little John, you know, Nifahi was out prior to that and was back in. And, you know, big, big players were missing. And and Megan yeah. Connolly, like a huge loss, but yet Ireland still had that level of depth to be able to cover those injuries. Um, and there's a couple of longer term injuries there. And you'd be looking to see how do those players, where are they in terms of their fitness levels coming into the, the business end of, of next summer? So, um, but it's a great position for Vera to be in, you know, to have the squad available that she has, the level of depth that's already there, um, players to return from injury and potentially one or two new faces. Um, you know, that's that's a fantastic position for any manager to be in. Um, and it makes the squad competitive. And when mm. the squad is competitive, if players don't feel that they're 100% guaranteed their position, it puts a little bit more pressure on them to be doing well at their clubs and not taking it easy and making sure that their name is is in that list when, when it gets submitted to FIFA, you know, next summer. It's about getting yourself onto that plane and, you know, we will be competitive and, you know, the more competitive it is, the better it is too. Yeah, and for in terms of tournament football, do you feel the reactive style of play that Ireland generally play, with the exception of those two games against Georgia, that actually it is very well suited to this type of tournament? Yeah, well, that's Ireland's style. That's that's the way Ireland play. There'll be other teams that won't go into a tournament with that approach because that's not who they are. It's not their identity. Um, you know, so I think that's 
that's what Ireland, that's what's got Ireland there. I think Vera has been very strong, that that's her philosophy. That's the way it is. That's the way she sees strengths in the team. And, you know, you can't argue with that because they've qualified and, and, and that's that, that so that it has been effective. Um, so, um, so look, will it, it's, it's, she's also seen that it's worked against Australia. It'd be interesting to see against Canada um, because both teams kind of play similar enough approach um, and Nigeria will be quite different because it'll be a much more open game um, against Nigeria. So um, because of the way they play, they almost man-mark um, players. And, and so it's, it's very disruptive to teams and structured um, setups. So it'll be, it'll be really interesting. But I, I, look, I don't see Vera really changing it, um, to be honest. I think the players have got good at the system that she employs. Um, and the players are comfortable with it and it's working and they believe in it. So, you know, if, if I guess if it's not broke, don't fix it. Um, but it will it, it will suit Ireland, I think, um, to, to play that way, um, because that's the way that that, 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 that that has really become the identity of this particular group under Vera. Yeah, and I'd imagine they'll, they'll be based out in Eastern Australia, just with the way the fixtures are laid out. But then there's that trip to Perth on mm-hmm. July 26, six days after uh, they start off in Sydney and then they're back in Brisbane. So um, yeah. maybe for people who aren't familiar with the geography of Perth, I mean, it's as close to maybe Southeast Asia as it would be to Sydney. So that's, and again, obviously it doesn't just affect Ireland. Canada will have the same issue because they're playing two games in Melbourne either side. But that's again, little challenges that they'll have to think about where to locate yourself exactly. And uh, just the effect of travel as well, because it's not like a World Cup in a small country. Yeah, absolutely. And and I've only, I guess, when I was in Costa Rica this, you know, in August, that you really appreciate when you can be based in one place for an entire tournament or, you know, that there's very little travel because once you do have to travel, it does change the dynamics of your recovery and, and player recovery and, and stuff like that. So um, it's particularly when it's long distances to travel, it does make a difference in terms of how you and so you have to think about the team getting them there the time difference and dealing with the jet lag because you know even I was speaking to one of the managers in Costa Rica and the seven hour time difference they said like it took their players six days to adjust to the the jet lag and to actually start hitting the performance levels in training so you have to think about that adjustment up right at the start of, of when you go and get in there um, what's the time difference that you give the team to settle but then when you have to move again um, and and it's just that whole upset of you know packing your bags and getting on buses and going to airports and traveling like it, it is it, it is an inconvenience for a team when you if but at least if you could be based somewhere fly and then go back to your other base which I think Canada will be able to do then it's it, it's not so bad but if you potentially have three different bases for three different games, then that is um, a, a, that is a challenge and that will have to be factored in to the way you periodize the training and the recovery and, and the, the eating and the sleeping and, and all of that. So um, it's not ideal, but look, it is what it is and it will be similar for other teams as well. So um, that's the beauty of it. But listen, to be playing in a World Cup, I don't think, you know, yes, the travel might not be ideal, but to just be there and have that whole experience and an opportunity for the players to play 
um, you know, and experience this is, um, you know, it's it's an experience of a lifetime and it's one that will live with live with them forever. Um, and also great because not only the experience that they gain from this, that experience can filter on then to players who might qualify for future tournaments and that knowledge piece um, will be very, very strong. It will carry, it, there'll be a legacy piece from that as well for future players um, and, and teams, Irish teams going to future tournaments as well. So, you know, it's, um, while it might be a little inconvenient at times, it'll be, you know, just part of the challenge that has to be managed. Lisa, I just read there that the 2015 and 2019 tournaments, World Cups, Women World Cups, did not make any money. Like they, they didn't turn in a profit. And FIFA are hoping that the 2023 tournament will break even. And I just read there last night that a number of broadcasters, namely the BBC, the ITV, Spanish broadcasters, German broadcasters, when they submitted their bids to show the tournament, FIFA came back and said, no, you're, you, you're paying too little or you're not paying the amount that we expect. I'm quite surprised that the previous tournaments didn't make a profit, uh, and, but that FIFA now are quite determined that this tournament will show a healthier bank balance at the end of it, you know? Yeah, well, I don't really... <laughs> That whole area wouldn't be my area now. Yeah, to be I'm just curious. But, yeah, but I think, um, like, I think, I think if you just zoom out and look at the the development of the women's competitions globally, um, and the professionalization of the women's leagues and the additional sponsors that are coming in to support those leagues and the additional prize money that comes, um, for teams that qualify, um, and for teams that progress and win. Um, I think it's going to change. And I think the value of the product of women's football is, is naturally going to evolve and have a much better value on it. And that's a good thing. Um, that's, that's a positive step. Um, and, you know, I think as we see tournament, you know, we see bigger crowds coming, the, you know, tickets prices will obviously, yeah. whereas there, there would have been an era where free tickets would have been given out. I think we're long gone from that era when we get to international competitions and stuff like that as well. So, um, look, I think um, it's just part of the national natural evolution of the game um, that, um, you know, there's, it's becoming more visible, it's becoming more valuable, um, and, you know, it's becoming more professional. And with that, I, I guess, does come um, a, a slightly bigger price. And um, like I say, that wouldn't be an area of my expertise. No, <laughs> but um, yeah. but I, I would imagine it's just a natural, um, you know, evolution of, of the game that, you, you know, you see the, the teams coming from smaller stadiums into bigger stadiums, you know, sell out crowds, um, bigger sponsors, bigger prize money. Um, listen, it's all very positive. Um, and, um, you know, and, and I think, TV companies, I'm sure, will be able to get better advertising revenue because people will want to advertise during those games um, because there'll be big audiences. So I guess, yeah, it's um, it's just part of the the natural evolution. And, um, you know, isn't it great to see the women's game having the visibility and, and the huge interest at home? Like, you know, everybody's buzzing and mm -hmm. so many people were up watching the draw at half seven in the morning. Like, yeah. it's it's fantastic and people are really engaged in it and um you know and listen we have to welcome that it's um it's it's people who've worked in women's football have long aspired to have moments like this um and it's it's great and and please god now it'll it'll continue
Yeah, and all all roads lead now to July 20, 2023 in Sydney, obviously for the for the Irish team. And it might feel far away now, but I know these things tend to just catch up with you very, very quickly. And we'll be we'll be right there next July. But I know, uh, Lisa, yourself, you're very busy, obviously, in Goa and India at the moment. And uh, you'll also have to get your passport stamped in a lot of other countries <laughs> by the time we get to Australia next year. So, look, thanks a million uh, for taking the time. And we'll definitely be catching up between now and uh, next summer. Thanks a million. All right, that was Lisa Fallon, who was joining us on the line from India, where she's attending the Under-17 World Cup. And of course, as outlined there, the Ireland women's are going to be playing the hosts Australia in Sydney on the 20th of July. And then after that, it's Canada and Nigeria. So a tough draw. But as Lisa Fallon says herself there, it's not as daunting, maybe, as it looks on paper. And uh, I was just looking at the RT website there, Jim, and Mm. it seems that uh, we are going to be showing every single game. Yeah, uh, it's an agreement with the EBU, RAF, uh, that RT have, are going to show all the games. Uh, I think in the last World Cup in 2019, I think we split them with, uh, we split the coverage with TG Cahar. So I think that's good news. It's going to be a, a, a packed summer. Uh, I'm just looking at the dates there. I mean, the 20th of July, I think it just, um, I think the football and hurling finals in the GA are on the, two weekends that follow that so um yeah so and i i just read earlier and i did mention it to lisa earlier about the uh some broadcasters namely the bbc and itv who have submitted bids to show the tournament but fifa have got back to them and said look you, you're not your bid isn't high enough for us to, we, we think you should be paying more so and there's other broadcasters as well i think spain as well so well obviously rte went in with the, with the bid uh, with the EBU, which which is the European Broadcasting Union. So it's good news all around. Um, what is it? 60, 60 plus games uh, in all and all live in RT2. And the times of the games as well, RAF, were also announced uh, today. So um, I think it's 11, p- 11 a.m. and 1 p.m. I think the first game, I think the first game against the Aussies is at 11 and the game against Canada is at uh, is at 1 p.m. Irish time. And then the final group game is at 11 a.m. So uh, perhaps maybe some people taking uh, early lunches on, on those days to, to hop out and watch the games. Yeah, and uh, not in that time zone in Australia, nor in India, are Paul Corey and Jonathan Higgins, who join us now. Lads, how are you? Good, thank you. Good stuff. Um, I suppose before we get on to the Women's National League and then into the SSE or Tristy League Premier Division, where in one case a title race uh, is very much on, and in the second case it seems to be more or less over. Uh, Paul, um, speaking of like far-flung places and you know playing, you know as we as we were talking to Lisa there all the way in India, um, from your own t- uh, from your own time in the Ireland youth teams, did you ever play anywhere particularly far-flung, even within Europe itself? I was in Lithuania. I was in a good couple of places. I'm trying to trying to think how kind of far east or how far west I actually went. Um, covered a lot of Europe. Played in the uh, in the Parc de France, Paris Saint Germain Stadium. Um, then we had a couple of internationals out in Lithuania against Russia and Georgia and, and co. So uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm struggling to kind of rack my brain at this moment in time as to to which ones are or which were the probably most extravagant places that I ended up but playing in some nice venues um some great stadiums across Europe particularly I guess the one in, in Paris sticks out um and I get some really strong players as well and uh, would have played against well I didn't play but I was in the squad for an Italy under 21 game against Marco Verratti 
Then there was a game against um, the Spanish under-16s team, which included Thiago. So uh, probably lucky that I only came on for the guts of five or ten minutes in those games, Raf, because uh, that's a, a calibre of player that you don't want to be pitting yourself against too often. Yeah, and uh, at the weekend, Jonathan, uh, you weren't in Goa or anywhere anywhere like that. You were in Talca Park. I was in so... Talca, which is equally as nice and uh, exotic, wasn't it? Uh, but what, what, a, what a title race again. It seems the Women's National League can only produce, we remember back last year, the drama of the swing from, from Newcastle across to Talca where the title went after Piemont uh, were two goals up against Galway. We thought, I have to say, a, a week or two ago, I thought when Piemont were still in it, I thought we might have that romantic notion of where the good comes bad, they're playing Galway on the last round of games. I thought maybe that was the game where it swings by, but it's down to a three-horse race now and it's, it's just fascinating, really. Uh, Shelburne and Wexford then coming together as well just add another layer of drama to it and then you have Athlone who have just become on such a rise it's incredible what Tommy Hewitt has, has done there already in the cup final and still an outside chance of the title and you speak to Tommy over the course of the year and he's like no 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 we don't have a chance I think he's, he changed it to we need a miracle now after their victory at the weekend but it's just fascinating really is and the calculators are getting the permutations but it is relatively straightforward now it's it's the kickoff, really. Winner takes all between Shells and Wexford. And then Athlone need to win their game against Bowes and then hope that that's a draw to get into a playoff with Shells. So it's uh, so many different permutations. But if the only thing we can say, if we can judge it on precedent, what's happened before, there'll be a lot of twists and turns on this yet. Yeah, let's just run through the results from Saturday because, it, it as it's, as you said, um, I think there were four teams in the running as we went into the weekend. Obviously, P-Mount no longer in it, but they had finished the season so strongly. So Athlone, um, as you said, really impressive this season, beating Galway 1-0. P-Mount and Wexford drawn 3-3. I was watching that game. It was uh, it was one of those where nobody wanted to give, give an inch. As soon when you thought there was a knockout blow, then the other team would always come back. And then Cork City lost 1-0 to Bohemians. DLR Waves beat Treaty United 7-0 and then the game you were at, Shelburne, beat Sligo Rovers 2-0. So you were speaking to Abby Larkin afterwards who scored both of Shelburne's goals. Let's listen to her. Yeah, I mean, it was a tough game. We knew coming out that it's not just us putting on our jerseys. We knew that we had to put in the work and I'm delighted I got the first goal. I actually ran into the ball and didn't even realise that I touched the ball and then the well started laughing at me. But yeah, it was good to get two goals. Get Good to get in score sheet. Yeah, the perfect start that you wanted because these games can get nervy and they did at times because Sligo did ask a good few questions there as well. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. They put up, they gave us a good challenge in the first half and second half. Um, I think we came out second half. We had a team talk in the dressing room. We sorted ourselves out. I think we came out and performed well in the second half. But yeah, it was it was a good game though. The second goal, you know, it came at such a good time. So both your goals actually, if you could pick nearly perfect times. But it just, uh, if it was getting nervy, just settle things down again. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, we were we were definitely a bit sloppy sometimes, but I mean that happens. The pitch wasn't really the best, but we just had to work with them circumstances. And um, yeah, my two goals came perfect time and one early goal, and they just told me that I might get another one, and I scored there again. <laughs> and it's down now. It's still in technically in your own hands. You know, you go to Wexford, get a victory. Your Chapman's again. I suppose where you want to be coming into the last game of the season. Yeah, I mean it's great. I think. Um, the first when we played Sligo last time, we were unfortunate with the results, but um, we worked out today and we came. We we were good, yeah. But um, yeah, it's a great place to be, and it's kind of in our hands now. So we should go out and perform well against Wexford. And I'm sure looking to the green side of things as well. I'm sure, like your soul, you're up early this morning looking the draw. First thoughts on that? It's 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 so exciting, isn't it? Yeah, no, it's uh, really exciting. Um, I think we got a good group, and yeah, we should go out and perform well. 
what we do. Playing, playing the course in the first game as well. It, you know, it doesn't really get any better in Ireland's first World Cup t- game. Yeah, no, it's deadly. Um, the where it is in uh, Sydney, it's obviously a great achievement. Um, and yeah, everyone's excited for it. see what happens. Yeah, Canada and the Nigeria then as well. You know, it's, I suppose it is tough. It is well, it is exciting. It is tough. There's some tricky ones in there. Yeah, definitely. We got. I think we got a good group, but there's never going to be any easy team in the World Cup. They're all phenomenal teams, and we'll just go ha- go out and have to perform our best every day, every game. And we've plenty of Irish down under as well. It should make uh, full houses for the for the games. Yeah, yeah, I can't wait. Um, I'd say some of them will be popping over and giving us a handout with the support. So exciting times. Oh, very exciting. Can't wait. That is Shelburne's Abby Larkin score of two goals in that game and obviously someone we had on the podcast back in the spring. Um, Jonathan, can you just take us through the game? Because obviously it was a must win for Shelburne and in the end it obviously put them in the driving seat as well. And we will listen to Noel King very shortly as well, uh, the manager just about the lay of the land heading into the heading into the, the final round of action where they have to go uh, to face Wexford in what's going to be a very tough game. But just your kind of reading of the game. Yeah, I suppose they Shells started, well, they maybe have been a little bit sluggish at times uh, recently. They started quite well, obviously, the early goal. Uh, I think Abby playing centrally has made a big, big difference. Uh, she's such a talented footballer, and I think she's a lot more effective, both in terms of the attacking threat and also the pressing that she gives back on the other way. She's just a ball of energy in the middle, and I think it's definitely suited. But the biggest story was is they just <coughs> they kept on creating chances, but they kept on missing them. Uh, Noel Murray and the Sligo goalkeeper seemed to be having a one-on-one battle like on another day it's no exaggeration she could have got five or six she had that many opportunities and the longer it went on Sligo kind of grew into the game just before half time and there was a little bit of nerviness I suppose is the best way to describe it because these games are so huge importance on them as well and it's understandable and it's a squad as well that is almost un- not unrecognisable but they've lost some huge players from last season uh, and that's probably Noel King's probably biggest Achievement is the way he's able to keep it going because they seem to be getting blow after blow. And interestingly as well, now she only made a little bit of appearance at the end, but Heather O'Reilly is back, we believe. She had been away for a while, so back. And talk about adding a, a bit of equality and a bit of experience for, for two important games. But the second half, the longer it went on, you, you were half kind of going, this is the movie I've seen before. There's going to be a late twist here. Sligo will get a goal and the whole thing could have been up in curtains from shells. But Abby got the second one then. And typically you came after... Being sent through, goalkeeper saved, comes out and volleys at a second occasion. And you could just talk about like a sense of relief all around the ground then as well. They knew the job was done, but it, it was nervy at times, but they just have that extra bit of quality. Sligo, they'll probably look to the likes of Athlone, the way they've risen up the league. Some very talented players coming forward, probably a little bit defensively, probably need an area of an improvement, but they're certainly grown, grown pretty well in, in their maiden season in the league. But Shells, ultimately, they got where they want to be. Yeah, and you were also speaking to Shelburne's manager, Noel King, afterwards, and it was more, in this clip, we're going to hear more in relation to the title race. Obviously, as we said, they're going to Wexford Utes on Saturday, or, at the, or this weekend, and it's a winner-takes-all. Now, obviously, a draw puts Athlone back into the equation, but uh, let's listen to your chat with Noel King. We saw late drama in the title race last year. <laughs> Dare I say, it, are we going to see something similar again next week? I think the way it's going, I think maybe three or four teams can win it on the last day. So that's if Wexford win, they win it. If we win, we win it. Uh, I think P-Man are involved, but they're waiting for the results. I, I think that's the way it is. But um, we won't talk about it until Saturday. <laughs> Calculators at the ready. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. At least, I suppose, you know, it's in your hands. I suppose that's where you want to be. Like, if, you'd, if I'd said to you at the start of the season, you win the last game, you're going to be champions, you'd probably took my hand off for it. Absolutely, yeah, and that's the truth. We did have a blip, as everybody has blips, and it's how you deal with them. I think we've gradually worked our way back uh, 
we lost some players which is part and parcel for the game had some injuries which is the same for everybody but I think our performances have improved over the last five to six weeks and we've gradually got back to where we are and I think tonight was, uh, was very good we can't wait for the end. <laughs> we'll have to wait. Thanks. All right, that's Shelburne manager Noel King speaking to you, Jonathan, afterwards. But, uh, Jim, just a word on Sligo. Before we touch on Wexford <coughs> and we touch on um, P-Mount and Athlone as well, um, you know, when you look at the, the results over the season, they've got 20 points. They're, uh, you know, they're they're going to finish eighth. Uh, yeah. it's, it's a very, you know, for, for a debutant season, it's a very solid campaign. Yeah, there was talk beforehand, Raph, that they were in, that they might finish up uh, bottom, but I think they were, you know, much more comfortable than that. And I suppose the highlight of the season was probably the three-two win over Shelburne back at the end of July. I think they came back from two goals down. So, as Jonathan pointed out, like you know, with the likes of Athlone this year and the run that they have. Um, and up there being quite close to the top of the table, ultimately might just come up. Maybe they might probably come up a little bit short in terms of uh, in terms of winning the title. But it's 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 something for Steve Feeney, the coach, and the rest of the players there in Sligo. Um, you know the players that they have from that they have from Leitrim and Donegal. There's you know that quite locally based players as well. Uh, it's something for them to build on for next season, and uh, hopefully as well. We also, I think Shamrock Rovers are going to be involved next season, so that's going to add that, that's going to add further spice to to the league as well. Yeah, and uh, Sligo would have started the season with a six 0 defeat against P Mount, but then of course uh, P Mount fielded an ineligible player, oh, and that's... that yeah that got overturned, and it, it ended up being a three 0 win for Sligo on paper after that. And I guess Jonathan, you've you've seen a few of P Mount's games and you know uh, reported from some of them. You know, obviously that three points would have been crucial in terms of the title race for them. They they had a few blips during the season, but overall, when you look at how they um, you know how they finished the season, I suppose there is going to be that regret about what happened on that opening day. Yeah, very much so. Uh, it, it's come to light now, probably at the business end, and the fact that they have got a good run of form. But you, you think back earlier in the season, like you probably would have thought at the start of the season, if you're looking at from the hurt of the way they lost, they had the biggest motivation going. They by and large kept the same squad as last year, and they would have looked across the shells where. Seemingly continuously, uh, players are, are moving on to, I suppose, bigger and better things. So many players have moved across the water. There, you thought Piemont would be in a lot stronger position, but they did have a big wobble during the course of the season. Um, they have got things back on track, but like I suppose you can kind of sum it up with the, the game on Saturday evening and then like the defending, particularly once they got 3 2 up, like it's a bouncing ball around the area after having a couple of, of scares. You had that. Kelly Murphy one that came back off the post where it's the most crookedest back four you'll ever see in your life and you thought that's the wake up call and then they still let in the equaliser at the end probably sums up the way the season has gone for them yes three points would have been a big thing but it's I suppose it's just it's an unfortunate series of an events that happened there but I suppose by and large on the pitch they probably haven't been as consistent as James McCallan would have preferred and certainly would have liked over the course of the year so they probably just need to maybe shake things up a little bit there as well yeah, and Anya Walsh's equaliser, obviously, in that game right at the end, uh, settling things. And Wexford, uh, also most add as well, best wishes to Della Doherty. There was a there was a long stoppage of play for about 16 minutes in the first half. She had a collision with mm-hmm. Anya Gorman of P-Mount and obviously the Ireland, Ireland national team as well. And I think it was a knee injury and uh, she's, uh, well, anyway, it, it, looked, uh, it looked quite sore anyway and she did have to be stretchered off. But Wexford, 
they finished the season or they're finishing the season quite strongly. I mean, they weren't really in the running and then Shells had a wobble and then they took the mantle and they're going to have home advantage now for this uh, final round of fixtures. So, I mean, I, Shells, will, because Shells have that advantage in the table, even as narrow as it is, they're probably going to be favourites. But Wexford, Wexford are going to be trying to use as much of this home advantage, I'd imagine. Oh, very much so. And you can imagine Ferry Carrick will be absolutely full. I saw something there a little bit earlier on. Shells are bringing down free buses for their supporters as well to try and rock up the atmosphere. Even more, a lovely touch on the on the flip side in out in Ratcool where the Wexford supporters, I think they were presented with uh, jerseys, the, the few that have made the long trip up uh, on, on Saturday's game as well. So it's so love to see some nice touches like that in the league. But on the pitch, yeah, it should be fascinating. Like Wexford, they did have that blip uh, losing that loan twice in the week, in a week in the, in the cup, and then in the league uh, two weeks ago now. Um, but they have got things back on track. That victory, the manner of the victory, or not the victory, the results, the, the 3 3, the manner of it, surely is going to give them big confidence and bringing their rivals down. You can already tell what the, the team talk will be. I just think it's an impossible game to predict, really. I think. I think there's going to be a lot of twists and turns and I know Athlone are in this situation where they need so many things to go right for them. Like obviously they have to win their own game against uh, Bowes and then hope for the draw, but you really wouldn't rule the draw out between those two sides either. And then that will lead to the playoff. But I, I write things as things stand now looking on over a couple of days prior to the game. I just, this game merely has draw written all over it to me. I think this could be a high score draw as well. And uh, yeah, the one thing we know, there'll certainly be drama. Yeah. And the final round of fixtures as uh, they're all obviously given it's a final day, all going to be kicking off the same time, 20 past five this Saturday. And it's Wexford against Shelburne, as we've said. So the top two going head to head, winner takes all. Except if it's a draw, then uh, if Athlone beat Bowes uh, away from home, then it will go to a playoff between Athlone and Shelburne. And obviously Athlone as well also have a cup final to look forward to, which, uh, you know, this could potentially be a historic season. Can you imagine if it's if it's the playoff between Athlone and Shells in the cup final between mm. them, like mm. which is going to be a bigger game then. Yeah. Maybe two and one or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then P Mount, who are out of the running, are away at Galway, Sligo Rovers against DLR Waves, and then Treaty United in uh, Cork City, both uh, towards the bottom of the table. Treaty United yet to win, so they'll hope to hope to finish off on a happier note after a difficult season. But uh, in the men's Premier Division, Paul, uh, I think the we, like there's batches tonight, obviously Derry City away at Sligo Rovers and then also with Shelburne taking on UCD. So what happens at the top and bottom is still subject to change by the time some people listen to this. But at the same time, Friday seems to have been fairly decisive. Yeah, it does. I mean, Shamrock Rovers have been very much in control at the top of the table after a long period of time. And there was maybe just a few slip ups in recent weeks that have uh, and combined that with Derry's good run of form that has maybe made it a, a title race for the guts of three to five days. And uh, yeah, the, the swinging results last week have certainly put it to bed now. I mean, uh, I thought Shamrock Rovers were extremely good against St. Pat's. Um, I would say for the good of the season, they've probably been in third gear, Raph, and, and on Friday night, it seemed like they stepped it up a gear or two for that 90 minutes. They went behind early. They didn't panic. They were in control of the game for the majority of it. Yes, a bit of luck with, with that second goal. It was um, it was certainly free out as a push on Chris Forrester, but if you just look at, at the balance of play, like the control possession, they moved St. Pat's about. They were rarely threatened in behind, and when you've got the quality of Jack Byrne, Graham Burke and Rory Gaffney at the top end of the pitch are always going to create chances. So I thought it was a really 
professional performance. I thought it was it was littered with good bits of quality, particularly in that final third. And they haven't really had to flex too often this season, but when they did on Friday night, they showed how much of a gap there is between themselves and, and some of the other teams in the division. Um, and you combine that with the result in, in the Brandywell on, on Friday night, it's most certainly over. And I would say psychologically, more so than anything, it's going to be a big ask for Derry to go to Sligo tonight and win. I'm sure there's a a strong cohort in that group now are just thinking about keeping themselves ticking over for the cup final and uh, mentally we'll, we'll see the league as being done and dusted. Yeah, so those results, Shamrock Rovers for St. Pat's 1, which was live on RT2 and the RT player. And then as you, as you said there, Derry City against Shelburne ended up being a 1-1 draw, which leaves the table at the very top, eight points between Shamrock Rovers and Derry City, albeit Derry City have that game tonight, which is the, the game in hand. So they, if they win it, it'll bring it back to five ahead of the showdown on Sunday between those top two. But uh, even, even with that, obviously, it's all very much in Shamrock Rovers' hands. Let's listen to Stephen Bradley, who was speaking to Tony O'Donoghue at a full time after the win over Pats. Stephen, congratulations. A, a huge three points under the circumstances. It means, in fact, um, that a draw will do in the next game against Derry. Yeah, fantastic performance, uh, fantastic result. And, uh, and we'll go to win the game against Derry. The fact that they dropped points at the Brandywell shells did you a favour, it seems, tonight. No one's done us favours, uh, Tony. We've said all along, it's in our hands. It doesn't matter what anyone else does. Uh, a lot of noise from outside, a lot of people talking, but these players step up, they always do, and, and they always have, they have tremendous character. The fact that you conceded so early, I mean, you know, that definitely asked questions of your players and of your character, didn't it? Yeah, conceding early uh, is always okay with this group because they respond. Late on, obviously, you're chasing it, but early on, uh, we felt we were fine, we were right in the game. The penalties, there was a, a number of them. I mean, I don't think you can have any uh, complaints. Joe Redden's tackle on, on Graham Burke was a penalty and he puts them away so well. Um, but the fact that there was a, a push, it seemed, uh, on Chris Forrester, um, you know, did you see that? For which one, sorry? Uh, the, the, uh, there was a push on, on, on Forrester. Um, uh, Cleary's header, first of all, the, the two-one. I haven't seen it. To be totally honest, I haven't, I haven't seen any of the uh, penalties back, any of the incidents. So um, I'm not sure, to be honest. And then uh, a scruffy goal, I guess, by, by Sean Hall, maybe making up for an early mistake. Yeah, we, uh, like you said, the, the one early on that goes on his foot, very unlike him. Uh, but we know we have real threats on set players with Dan Pico, Sean Hall, Andy. So we have real threats. So you got Ghent next. I mean, you know, you've got to think about the Derry game. You want to win it. Um, how are you going to approach the European game? We'll go to win it like we did last week at home. We'll go to win it as strong as possible. Uh, you don't have to consider travelling, so we'll go to win the game. OK, that is Shamrock Rovers manager Stephen Bradley, who um, I think judging from his celebrations afterwards, I think he, it was very clear the significance of uh, the swing of results on Friday night. Before we talk about how he approaches this week, a the Ghent game on Thursday, which is the final home game in the Europa Conference League group stage campaign, and then obviously possibly having to finish the job against Derry City on Sunday, which is a match going to be live in RT2 and the RT player as well. Um, uh, Paul, I guess first, we've seen a couple of games where they've had to come back from deficits. A, the Shelburne game, they had to do it twice in quite difficult uh, climactic condi conditions as we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And then against Pats where they went down early and it's one of those it's one of those days where at that point uh, you, you you didn't know what swing of results was going to happen and you're kind of thinking there are Derry City sort of back into it before whatever happened uh, at the Brandywell but it other than just the strong squad they have it it is that resilience again that Stephen Bradley's talking about they do there is a lot of character in that Shamrock Rover squad 
Yeah, I think you can put it down to two things, Raf, um, because this has been something that's been consistent in, in the results over the last two to three seasons. One is the resilience and the belief within the squad in, in Steve and Bradley, but also in, in the way they play. Uh, they very rarely deviate away from playing out from the back, playing through the thirds, using the wing backs in, in wide areas and then looking to get those creative players on the ball. But it's it secondly... It's it's just the way they they control games. Um, so often they control the large percentage of possession and, and they take the legs away from opposition that they're working so, so hard to kind of keep Shamrock Rovers out that when it comes into the last 10, 15 minutes, mentally teams are zapped and physically the legs are gone. And it's, you know, the persistence to play in that way that the gaps then start to show in, in that kind of final third of the game. And uh, they've done that relentlessly over over the last two years. They've never kind of strayed away from the belief in what it is they do. And so often they tend to carve teams open in those final stages of the game. Against Pat, it, it happened for them a little earlier. Um, and uh, in, in previous games, you know, you think back to Shell's, they, they just never stop. They're relentless in, in going after you. And, and that is kind of that winning mentality when you put it all together. And they've shown that over the last number of years, competitions, they've won trophies, FAI Cups, league titles. And um, with the ability that they have in that squad, kind of put it all together. It's hard to see other people kind of taking the league away from them. But, you know, within Derry, they certainly have a challenger there over the next, um, over the next 12, 24 months. Yeah, and uh, for Shamrock Rovers, before we touch on Derry City, and there's a lot of they might there might be a sense of disappointment, and we'll see how much disappointment also depending on the result tonight as well. But from a Shamrock Rovers point of view, first obviously they have the game against Ghent, the and as Stephen Bradley said there, they're going to try and win it. It's obviously final home game of the group campaign, and then obviously playing Derry City as well on Sunday. How do you think they're going to approach it in terms of selection? Because he's uh, Bradley has kind of mixed and matched in Europe so far this season, trying to factor in the challenges they had in the league. But as things seem to be opening up now and uh, they could be champions by uh, by the time, uh, by 10 o'clock tonight, depending on what happens between Derry and Sligo, how do you think he will approach it uh, if they're confirmed as champions? Do you think he'll just name the strongest team on Thursday? I'm sure he was in a position to do this a lot earlier. Um, there was obviously that game away, it was at Molde where he's had to kind of juggle the pack because of the league form, I'm sure he wishes that the league had been put to bed a couple of weeks ago, or maybe that Derry didn't come as good as they did. I'd be surprised if if he went and made any changes based on the team on Friday night. I think with Gary O'Neill out injured at this moment in time, I think the 11 that went out the other night, you could maybe give or take Dylan Watson for potentially Richie Taylor or Chris McCann. I don't really see there being too many changes. I think that is their strongest 11 on paper at this moment in time. And probably their strongest 11 uh, when you look at the players they have available, I think Jack has Jack Byrne has probably been a bit unlucky with the extent of the back injury that he's had, and and maybe him being out injured has maybe meant an opportunity for one or two more. But when you've got two Irish internationals in the final third, and you got Rory Gaffney who's been superb all season, um, that kind of picks itself. The back three, Roberto Lopez back from injury. I think they've got a good balance there with Sean Hoare and Dan Cleary potentially league race coming in, but. I don't see that one happening. So I think the team that played against Pats will most likely go out and, and play that European game. If the their result goes in their favour tonight, it will probably give themselves a, a bit more breathing room, knowing that they can put everything into that fixture uh, with, with the league sewn up. So it's a big opportunity, Raf. Um, you know, Stephen Bradley has spoken about 
European football um, and qualifying into the group stages on a continuous basis. It's very important that you win the league, but also then when you get to that stage, particularly in the group stage, you want to see them picking up points. Um, I said at the beginning of the group, four points would be a great return. In order to do that, they would have to have to win on Thursday night. So um, it would be great to see them do it. Financially, it's massive for the club with what it is they can do with their infrastructure, both on the pitch and off the pitch. So for that reason, it'd be very important as well. But I think most importantly, the benchmark for people who, who don't really watch the league is, is European results. And uh, we would love to see them go and get a, a positive one in the group stages. Yeah, and if Derry City are not to win tonight against Ligo, obviously the title then race is very much over. But for you know, they have obviously they've got the promise of a, a cup final and actually repeat against the Shelburne side who held them on Friday night. So for them, even if the title race is over, it's really a case of just trying to keep momentum. So I imagine there won't be any juggling of uh juggling of players, maybe subbing off players a little bit early in the last couple of games, but uh, it's all about momentum for them uh, with a, with the huge promise of a cup final and everything that means for, for Derry who haven't uh, tasted glory in the cup for a number of years. 100%. And if you think back to what kickstarted for Shamrock Rovers, it was that cup final win against Dundalk and penalties. And it was from there that springboard into uh, winning the league and back-to-back leagues. And um, I guess, you know, once players get a, a taste of winning trophies, they want more and it builds belief amongst the squad. And I'm sure Rory Higgins is delighted with the progress that the squad has made over the last 12 months. He was blooding a lot of new players. He himself was relatively new to the job. So they're probably a little ahead of, of where he may have foreseen them 12 months ago and, and looking to where they might be at the end of this year. So I think he'll be absolutely delighted with that. I think when you... If, for instance, tonight they don't win, I think, you know, wrapping the likes of Patrick McElhenney and Michael Duffy and Cotton Wool is, is absolutely pivotal because they've been so important on the return from injury. And their experience in how to win games has, has been evident to see in, in their league form. And they also know how to how to deal with big occasions like cup finals. So resting the likes of, of them, potentially even throw Mark Conley into that as well, who's had a lot of minutes, both with Dundalk and Derry this year looking after the senior pros and making sure they're 100% okay for the cup final will be absolutely paramount. I know Rory said in his post-match conference that the league isn't over. I think internally they'll, they'll, they know it's done and dusted, particularly when Shamrock Rovers have UCD to play and only need one point to pick up. Um, so it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how they get on against Sligo. They were beaten last time they went to the showgrounds. They've had difficult tests against Sligo this year. So I, I think psychologically, given what happened on Friday night, I think they'll drop points tonight and I think Shamrock Rovers will win it. Yeah, and uh, Dundalk and Pats also in that battle for, for third. It's going right to the wire. Uh, only a couple of points between them. In the run-in now, Dundalk have Bowes and Derry. Um, uh, the Derry game being away from home and then Pats have got Sligo away from home and then they play Shells. It's uh, it's it's a hard one to separate. I think Dundalk would have looked maybe at their, their game against Sligo on Friday as maybe an opportunity to try and pull away, but uh, it ended up being a kind of pulsating 3-3 mm. draw. So <laughs> there's no getting away from each other. No, there's not. Mm. It's an important point though. And that that last minute equaliser from Keith Ward is, is important. Any point, 
on the board at this this stage of the season um you know to to put a little bit more distance between themselves and Pats but we'll please Stephen O'Donnell it was a really good game looking at the highlights Raf um there was two superb goals Alfie Lewis had an absolute screamer into the top corner and then Keena had a, a superb second for Sligo where he's I'm sure Stephen O'Donnell will look at the defending but he's mazied his way past two or three that is super striking to the bottom corner so um really entertaining game in Dundalk I think it was important that they didn't lose that game and just put a little more distance between themselves and Pats. And I think with goal difference, it probably looks like it's three points. And if they could get one more win, that would almost as a certain put them um, and secure their, their European spot. And for Pats, they're probably looking at Derry win the cup as, as being their best route at this moment in time. But there's work to be done there at Dundalk. Um, at times during this season, it looked like they were, they were going to latch on to, to Shamrock Rovers and, and maybe a little closer than what they've ended up. But um, the basis of what Stephen O'Donnell is trying to do is certainly there, but it, it's going to require good recruitment in the offseason in order to get them a, a step closer because it looks now as if Derry have gone beyond them and um, there seems to be a little bit of a gap between the top two sides and the rest. So it's going to be important. Um, recruitment is such an important part of any manager's job, and I'm sure Steve will be looking to get the right players into the building next year to, to push them on to the next level. Yeah, before we touch on the battle at the bottom and the uh, battle to avoid relegation, which uh, had a slightly semi-decisive uh, moment on Friday night, uh, Jim, first, just on Sligo Rovers, I suppose uh, that sort of mid-table contest, it's all about trying to you know finish best of the rest outside of that top four. So tonight's game, Sligo will have, still have plenty of motivation. They're currently fifth, just ahead of uh, mm. Bohemians also with that game in hand. That's right, Raf. Yeah, like, I mean, I suppose it's about you know, maybe trying to, to stay fifth. Uh, I'm sure they're disappointed that they're not challenging for the top four. Um, just, to, just to go to talking about Paul, that three points that Dundalk picked up after Sligo played the uh, ineligible player, uh, that's proven now to be very, you know, you know, pivotal because if Dundalk didn't get that three points passed, a point ahead of them in the in the table so you have all those fine margins yeah look I mean I think for Sligo I mean I think they'll try to finish the league strongly I think they were the last team to beat Derry back on the 23rd of May and uh, but in saying that it's been kind of up and down a bit for Sligo this season um, I think they've won 12 games they've lost 12 games you know what I mean? and they've drawn nine so far so um, but Keena I've been having having watched that goal again on Friday night I mean Keena I mean, brilliant brilliant uh, finish by the player and, and uh, he has been he's been an important player for Sligo this season and at the time that the times that he's been out injured have also uh, been somewhat costly for the club as well but yeah I mean fifth place finish for Sligo yeah I suppose an okay finish but I think they'd be disappointed that they certainly weren't pushing around for the top four yeah and UCD and Finn Harps for the last few weeks it's mm. been impossible to separate them at the bottom but then Ethan Varian scores a late late <laughs> goal for Bohemians to earn a 2-2 draw against Harps on Friday night and then at the same time then uh, Dara Keane scores the winner uh, for UCD against Roddy United so UCD now with also with the the additional game in hand against Shelburne they're two points clear of Harps Paul and ahead of what's going to be a uh, you know a head-to-head up in Donegal um so like Finn Harps maybe they're, they're obviously not out of it but it is piling pressure on them especially if UCD were to get something at Shelburne tonight 
Well, that was a huge swing on, on Friday night. Uh, that late equaliser at Daly Bin Park and then UCD scoring two and coming from behind to be drawn is a huge swing. And uh, probably not one that you would have foreseen kind of when you saw the games at halftime the other night. So it's huge for UCD. They, they have that ability, Raf, to at times just make a click and be really good against certain opposition or put together a really strong 45 minutes and go win games. So it was vitally important I think they're going to need something tonight against Shells um, because I can just, I can see it already. Friday night, it's going to be a downpour. It's going to be windy. It's Bally Buffet. It's Finn Harps at this time of the season. And they just find a way to get themselves out of trouble. So I think for, for UCD, a result against Shells would be extremely important tonight. Their goal difference is, is a bit worse than Finn Harps as well. So um they're, they're gonna. I think they're gonna need to get a point tonight, and then hopefully another point against Finn Harps on Friday. Um, but Bally Buffet at this time of the year is such a difficult place to go. It, it really, really is. They've been in this situation so many times that they almost know how to deal with the pressure. Um, it, like irrespective of where Finn Harps are mid table or midway through the season, they always seem to be at this stage come October, and they always seem to get out of it. So, um, UCD have put themselves in a really good position. Um, will Shells maybe start switching off and start thinking about cup finals potentially but uh, a point tonight would certainly be really healthy for, for UCD's cause Yeah, before we touch on the first division and the, the playoff race which uh, is going to be kicking off this week and obviously to replace one of uh, Finn Harps or UCD depending on what happens over the next couple of weeks uh, let's just touch on Bohemians uh, very shortly obviously uh, Declan Devine um, since I was since I was away last week, but before that, anyway, um, the former Derry City manager was brought in as Bowles' next manager, and he's um, he's brought back Keith Buckley now on a three-year deal, installed him as captain straight away. Now, Buckley was away in Australia for the year, and Devine said once it was confirmed that this deal was happening, I need people alongside me who really care about this club and who understand understand what Bohemian Football Club is about. I have that in bucket loads for my first signing. And then Buckley added, uh, Divine also wants players who have a connection to the club to explain how important Bowles and the team is to its people. Maybe that connection has been lost a little bit this year. Uh, Paul, a lot of uh, reading between the lines, a lot a lot you can kind of read into in terms of maybe a leadership deficit on the pitch and then also maybe what uh, Buckley sort of uh, alluded to there, which is sort of a disconnect between the supporters and also those on the pitch. And obviously Buckley, as someone who's been there for so long previously, can bridge that gap. Yeah, I think what's been, I mean, quite evident in, in lacking in both performances here is is energy, aggression and a bit of leadership. And that's fundamentally what football fans, but in particularly Bose fans, want on a Friday night when they want to go see their team. And uh, it's been lacking. It's It's been so obvious anytime you've gone down and watched Bose that it's been missing. And uh, in Keith Buckley, you're guaranteed that every time he goes out on the pitch. And I would say there's many a Bose fan who won't give two hoots about the result against Finn Harps last week because they were so delighted to get Keith Buckley back in the building. Um, he's a real leader. Uh, and he's shown that anytime he's he's put the bow shirt on, he, he gives 110%. He's he's infectious in the way he plays, and it, it somewhat rubs off on the players around him when they see the energy and aggression he brings to the game, that others kind of match his work rate. And I think with, with Buckley and, and James Clark, who's come in from Jada, I think they've got a really good kind of uh, foothold in the middle of the park and a foundation that you, you can build around and to get him in the building for, for three years is is a huge statement for Bose. Um 
And Declan Devine, looking at, at the performances of late recruitment, is going to be really important for him to get people like Keith Buckley back in the building that he can he knows what he's going to guess every Friday night. I mean, Keith Buckley will be the first person to raise his hand and say he's by far the most talented player in the league. But what you get from him is, is a consistency and a leadership that is very, very difficult to find. So uh, a huge addition to, to the Bow squad. Um, they're certainly going to need more, particularly at the back. I think they, they probably need two centre-halves to, to go with Buckley and, and Clark in the centre midfield. And if you if you put that together, secure James Talbot down on a new contract, well, then the spine of the team starts to starts to look a little better. But based on, on their performances this year and some of the points they've, they've thrown away late in games, big characters with, with kind of big personalities that certainly needed. Yeah, and we're going to turn our attention to the first division now. Obviously, we're coming into the playoffs as the uh, the, the season proper itself comes to an end. So Waterford uh, signed off, uh, finishing second in the table with a 4-2 win over Athlone. Treaty United lost 2-0 to Wexford. Galway and Longford drew 3-3, which is uh, obviously a prelude into their own uh, play, uh, playoff first leg and second leg, which are coming up. And then Cork City got to lift the trophy. Uh, and uh, obviously they'd sealed promotion already with a 2-0 win over Bray Wanderers. So uh, it was a raucous, uh, raucous day at Turner's Cross. And uh, Jonathan Higgins, I know you keep uh, an ear to the ground on stuff in Galway, obviously, as someone from that county. And sorry, Paul, as well, this week has ended up being a Sligo man, at man and a Galway man so we're we're, we're abundant with uh with Connacht people on this but uh Galway have finished the season in quite poor form only uh won one league or have only one league win in their last nine games and again as we saw there that Longford game a 3-3 draw and then the two games coming up uh home and away away game first for Galway and then um they Longford go to Galway or to Eamon DC Park for the second leg it's uh, it looks a lot more tricky than maybe that would have looked uh, a few months ago. Yeah, and I suppose you know the, the I suppose the kind of blip or turning form kind of came at the worst possible time in terms of they were pretty much there thereabouts with Cork over the over the course of of the majority, and particularly the first half of the season. Um, and there was some quite tight games uh, between the two sides, very tight games. In fact, Galway's opening game of the season was a win down in Turner's Cross. They Cork then had the victory in MDC Park a little in the season, but they were so tight. They were both 1-0 victories. Both teams actually only finished with uh, 10 players in, in, in both of them as well. But since then, it's just had a bad run of form. You touched on the run there. It doesn't make pretty viewing at all. The only thing that you would say, and it's probably, you know, clutching a straws a little bit, is that blip is out of the way now. And it has been for a couple of weeks now. It's known that Galway are out of the title race and it is going to be focused on the playoffs and even to go one step further it has been that it's going to be finishing third as well with the Waterford coming on that late charge with a huge abundance of, of attacking players I still I still think they were arguably the better te- best team in the league if they had got things in order just had a bad start to kind of kill them because they're finishing as strong as anybody and that the attacking array of players they have is, is a scary proposition you take Friday night it was a game of very much shadow boxing um, you'll I think you'll probably count in one hand the the number of players that were started that will be playing on, on Wednesday and Sunday again, the big point of view and that's what it's, it's it's not really you know engaged in the, in the the playoffs is Galway had four players from their academy making their debut on that which is a it's another good word we've seen so many good Galway players over the year not necessarily play with Galway United and some of those players have been playing at some of the higher 
ends of the football and spectrum um, spectrums as well. But to get four lads through and actually four of them played very, very well as well. And it gave a whole little positive buzz because as, as you'll typically get with local young lads, they were tearing themselves about. And for the end of the game, as Galway chased down that equaliser, they they were all over Longford now. It was a pretty much scratch Longford team at that at that rate. But it did give a little bit of positive where any sort of positive was needed the way things were going. It's difficult to ask now on, on Wednesday night, I have to say, like it's a ground where Galway have won, gone twice this season and lost badly and uh, comprehensively in, in both of those games as well. Um, something's have to, <clears throat> going to have to try and kick into place. You're again clutching the straws. You see Rob Manley getting a couple of goals. Stephen Walsh, the top scorer, had the, the night off. But Longford have been such good form recently as well. But, you know, the old cliche playoffs are, are such difficult propositions with the yeah. two legs as well. It makes it even more uh, kind of a, a, you know, and you, you go back to Gary Gronin's when he was manager of Ray last uh, last year, nil nil at the Carlisle. And then they put a wonder strike from Brandon Kavanagh. They're only striking on target over the course of the two ties. Uh, is the is the difference between the sides? That's how tight playoff football is. You just have to hope that you know it will kick into life. But it's it's such a tight game to to, to even try and predict. Uh, both management, both players know each other. You have to hope with my maroon heart that they can just about get enough. And even well, they, I suppose the focus first is bring it back to it's a Sunday, and get a crowd in, and try and see how things go. But even you put the neutral hat on, it's I think it's quite a difficult tie to try and predict. Yeah, and Paul, just uh, Longford will go out, go in with some with some confidence, but their form also has been a little bit mixed. Yeah, they have, and I mean, you, you could probably say the same for all three teams outside of Waterford. Um, you know, the form has been very patchy. It's kind of the season's been later with, with some green spells of of back to back wins, and then kind of bumps in the road. And Longford have, have certainly been in that sort of mold. So. I mean, just just to echo what what Jonathan has said, it's it's a very very difficult tie to call between the two. I wouldn't be at all surprised if it's an edgy sort of affair tonight and very evenly balanced heading into the second leg. So um, it is a lottery. I mean, if you if you look at the teams who've who've gone up last year, UCD people probably wouldn't have, have picked them out. They finished third, and the year before that, Longford finished fourth and went up. So form somewhat goes out the window. Of course, you would want momentum behind you. Um, but for the three teams who've kind of huffed and puffed throughout the season, there's there's belief there that you can go up. Yeah, but uh, having said that as well, as you said, Waterford are the team that really have momentum uh, in that playoff uh, playoff race. Treaty United have had a good season when we think about the the cup run and uh, getting to a semi final and actually giving Derry City a a good game and only being beaten by a goal in the the semi final a couple of weeks ago. But this is a daunting one for them. It is, and I, I mean <clears throat> when you when you look at the the playoff situation as a whole, um, I would expect Waterford to be promoted. Um, I think the momentum that they've had in, in recent weeks, I think they've had five league wins on the bounce. Um, they certainly put it up to shells in, in that semi-final as well. And in Patterson, they've got a player who's banging form and scoring goals. So you would look at us um, with form and momentum and just the quality they have in their squad. You would expect that they would they would go beyond Treaty and then whether Galway or Longford come through, you'd expect them to to win there as well. So, um, I mean, Treaty showed, you mentioned it there, Raph, against Derry, that under Tommy Barrett, they're, they're very well drilled. It's probably something that has, has maybe come a, a bit too soon for them. Uh, maybe within 12 months, they might be a bit well set up for, for a fixture like this and, and for a promotion run. 
but uh, Waterford certainly have the quality. I mean, they've shown in their performances, particularly in the FAI Cup against the likes of Dundalk and St. Pat's, that they're well able to to pit it against the the teams in the Premier Division. And I would certainly expect that they would be too good for for the other three First Division teams, depending on who they play. And I would actually fancy them, whether it's Finn Harps or UCD, that they would be good enough there to, to get promoted. But anything can happen in these games and early sending off, a bad refereeing decision can swing a game very easily when it comes down to playoffs. But if you, if you're looking at form and if you're looking at the quality, it would be uh, a bad decision to go any other direction other than Waterford. Yeah, and uh, as we said, Cork City had already been promoted, so they're going to be playing Premier Division football next season and uh, lifted the First Division trophy at Turner's Cross. They've had great crowds down there over the season. Also, that crowd got to give a standing ovation to goalkeeper Mark McNulty, who's been more focused on the coaching side of things now, but at 42 years old, was given 25 minutes uh, of action and then, uh, as I said, subbed off and uh, has been a one-club man down there and just a kind of regular regular facing goal over the years for, for Cork City. So he's signing off uh, in style there. And uh, this week, um, we've also, apart from the, uh, the the game on Sunday, which is going to be live between Shamrock Rovers and Derry City on RT2 and the RT player, uh, Jim, we've got a Champions League action tomorrow night, Dortmund against Man City and uh, Erling Haaland, who had taken a little holiday from scoring goals, mainly thanks to Anfield and Liverpool. Um, that's one thing to look forward to, him going back to his uh, former club. Yeah, he would like to uh, bang in a few goals in front of the in front of the club that he previously played for. Yeah, he was back amongst the goals on Saturday against Brighton. So um, City are through. So like, you know, I mean, you they still, I would think, like to get through the uh, campaign unbeaten um, this week. But uh, and then, of course, we have other games during the week. Liverpool will be looking to uh, get the point that will see them through against Ajax on Wednesday night. And then we have Chelsea and Spurs also in action as well. I mean, Spurs obviously coming off the back of you know two games where they haven't played all that well in the Premier League. So yeah, plenty to look forward to in the Champions League. Yeah, and you mentioned Liverpool there away at Ajax, um, and they're I mean, one would imagine, bar something drastically wrong um, happening, that they're going to go through to the last sixteen. Mm. But then at the weekend, Jonathan, and I think as I said earlier on, you, you keep a very close eye on things at Liverpool. Uh, the defeat at Nottingham Forest, one nil, where they were so flat. Now, granted, a lot of chances from set pieces. They just can't seem to, you know, we, I would have thought things would have clicked after the win over City and then they won again um, after that with Darwin Nunes scoring. He didn't he didn't play at the weekend, but they just seem to be stuck in some sort of rut, obviously with injuries and everything else as well um, as a contributory factor. Yeah, very much so. Um, like there's no, there's no getting away as much as you don't want to try and brush it up or whatever you go. Liverpool are a team in transition at the moment. I think what you're seeing now is the, the chronic lack of investment in the squad over the last couple of years um, is coming to light now. But it's probably a result that really sums up, best sums up Liverpool season to date is the highs of what you can get and the raw emotion of Anfield and almost wiltering Man City and Haaland uh, doesn't hardly get a kick in the game to then complete opposite. It's as, yes, the created opportunities are from set pieces, but by and large from, from open play, it was quite tepid, it was slow, it was laboured, they gave the ball away a hell of a lot. Um, it still goes back to do you take Thiago to the team and they don't seem to have any rhythm at all in midfield you have Fabinho's a bang out of form Henderson is very much not in form 
uh, either um, you're you're stretching it. Um, he gets a call. You've uh, a prospect coming through in Curtis Jones. I think the I think it's a player that's hyped up a lot. But for me, I've seen him the whole way through. I think there's a very much a bit of English tax with him. I don't think he's anywhere near as good as I think he has plenty of potential. But I think he's yet to do it, and certainly thrown in coming back from from injury and. Uh, it didn't really stand a stand a prayer, really. I think the the, the news broke apparently at quarter past five in the morning that Tiago wasn't going to be available. So you can imagine Curtis Joan not expecting to be involved in the game. He's having his breakfast and then goes telling your play. It's probably not the best preparation for him. But if you want to take one thing to sum up the game, it's it's chasing a goal. <coughs> You're bringing Alex Alex Oakley's Chamberlain back from injury for the first time. Um, it's just a, it just shows you where the squad are as a whole, and then the amount of injuries from attacking perspective and it was just a, a grim grim result and I think unfortunately from Liverpool perspective you're going to see a lot more of those results between now and the end of the season because there's so many players there the highs and lows of one week and you look at the defence even Gomez who was outstanding against Man City um, just looked unrecognisable and then you can see like fair enough the mistake that led to the kind of the goal that could happen to anyone but what worries me and he's done this a couple of times earlier in the season as well Old Trafford comes to mind is the confidence goes and he's almost running away from the football there was one attack on the right hand side where he's the ball is in front of him that he can get but the fear comes in he doesn't want another make another mistake and comes in and that's just probably sums up his career to date with so many injuries as well but it's a squad that a squad that's really really stretched Yes, they could have had opportunities, but set pieces aside, didn't deserve to get answered from the game. And uh, it's a real kick in the teeth because three three wins in the week there would have got things rosy. You're almost saying it, just get to the World Cup, get on half a bit of run of form and who knows what will happen in the second half of the season. It almost feels like you're back to square one again here because that's just a, a tough one to take. Yeah, and Paul, I mean, there's some clubs, obviously clubs in good form when they look at the World Cup coming up, it's probably an unwelcome distraction for Liverpool. Potentially, it might be a good reset, but the unfortunate thing, and it's the same for most clubs at the highest level, you're not going to be able to work with your players over that uh, period of a month. And anyone, any players that do go there and maybe get injured, it's another setback and Liverpool have enough injury problems as it is. Yeah, unfortunately for, for Liverpool, you would imagine um, the majority of that squad is is going to be involved in that World Cup and the majority on play for, for top nations, which could, could see them go deep in the competition. So um, it's it's probably unwanted from, from Klopp's point of view to, to be putting minutes and loading minutes on, onto players that are probably exhausted at this moment in time. I think, you know, when you look back at the number of games they played last season, going to the final rounds in all competitions, it was always going to be a huge ask to turn it around and do it again this year. But they're certainly lacking something at this moment of time. I'm sure Klopp himself can't really put his finger on it when you when you turn in such good display against Man City and then see such a lackluster performance against Nottingham Forest. Is is something going to change in the in the next couple of weeks? I would strongly doubt that, Rafa. I would say they're at this moment in time, need to kind of focus on that top four and get as close to it as, as they possibly can and then look to the cup competitions as, as being their best chance of, of winning silverware because in the league, they they are certainly showing that they're miles behind City and Arsenal at this moment. Yeah, and Jonathan, I mean, it's only, 
obviously look we're we're talking we're talking in the second season after a, a previous campaign in which they went so close to pretty much winning everything but it's only a few months in between how much do you put you know the word hangover and liverpool it, it, i you see the two words in conjunction a fair bit but how much do you put uh stock in that there was a hangover from getting so close last season having so many games to play in a in a packed schedule and maybe just even the way it ended as well and sort of disappointing fashion that maybe that is still playing uh, a part this season oh i think very much is and i think just to rewind back to the tail end of that slate that season like obviously it was manic fixture schedule beyond crazy really the, the way the, the games were, were going then but there was a good few signs towards the end of that season where they were just about getting victories they weren't in control of games even villarreal in the in the champions league semi-final the second leg after having a good uh, first leg it turned into a manic game. You can you can argue slithered over the line there and fell short against Real Madrid. But there was little signs there that they were starting to get drained out. And then I think that's combined with the whatever the emotional troll that it takes on the on the minds and bodies and the short combined with the short turnaround and and again not getting the uh, the fresh blood in there and down the spine of the team. So many players that have just gone to the well. I think too many times. Um, and what you're seeing is just a knock-on effect of, of that, really. And I think there's no other way of of, of putting up. I think that around it, really, you look at the, the new age players, if you if you want to call in terms of the attacking Diaz, Nunes, uh, and Jota all out unavailable at the moment as well. That's kind of the next stage. Tiago, I mentioned on earlier, he's certainly not a you know a player that's going to be a hell in the future. But like he makes Liverpool tick. There's no other ways of putting. It's all midweek. When he came off against West Ham, they fell apart. They looked unrecognisable. He is that still player where they've almost, when they signed him, they changed the team. And now you take him out of it and it's they don't have another player to to, to be that type of role uh, and get the movement at all. And that's what they were crying out against for, against Nottingham Forest there. Just someone to get on the football, take the pace out of the game and get Liverpool going from an attacking perspective, which they there's no creativity at all in the team. And that's been a, a common threat or a theme when he isn't there. Uh, I think it's been touched on so many times, but that midfield and the lack of creativity in, in midfield and even at times the lack of energy in midfield has been a struggle. And that's why you've seen so many different tweaks to the formation. Klopp has always been a 4-3-3 guy. It was an element of 4-2-3-1 when he started, but it's gone back to you know 4-4-2 in recent weeks, which he never would have played in, 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 in a year Sundays. Um, but... That's just because trying to get some, some, and he's touched on it as well. Why have you changed? I need to try and get some stability, uh, and try and get players in form. And unfortunately, this this league is is so uh, demanding that if you're just off the pace, you will get punished. Yeah, and I think that's something Aston Villa prior to this weekend would have found, and obviously it cost Stephen Gerrard his job. Um, now he's with somebody, Jonathan, who has been linked uh, with becoming Liverpool manager at some point in the future, not any time in the short or medium term. This is obviously whenever Klopp uh, decides to step away, and Klopp certainly is in it for the long haul, even regardless of whatever problem issues they're having now. But uh, Gerrard's record at Aston Villa, and granted, we're talking over the span of. Uh, the end of one season and the start of another but it does total up to 38 Premier League games and won 12 and lost 18 and it would seem despite the success he had at Rangers granted it's a sort of a league that is a two-horse race in Scotland but even without that it seems the prospect of him ever becoming Liverpool manager at some point in the future whatever job he takes next 
needs to be a spectacular success. Otherwise, um, I think realistically, um, he's not. Maybe he wasn't even really realistically in contention anyway. But um, it's probably something that uh, won't be coming his way. Yeah, like I have to say, I never really got into the whole romantic notion of him possibly being the next manager because like what has that been based off it's nothing that you could say nothing in terms of his managerial career that's based off it's based off Gerard the player Gerard the club legend at, at Liverpool nothing really yes and I don't know how many examples people need of good players don't necessarily make good managers I think there's an argument to make that uh, non-elite football uh, footballers make better managers but look that's a conversation for another day but I think in terms of Gerard, you think of Gerard the player in terms of he was always this raw emotional guy off the cuff how many you know Benitez was the cold tradition and they, they the two of them never really saw eye to eye from that regard because it, he wanted structure he wanted uh, uh, stability where the Gerard is just like throwing petrol in fire he'll go off he has the ability to do stuff off the cuff but it was always a bit of kind of emotion that you would say he was based off don't get me wrong is that like he's running around like a school kid on on the yard or anything like that but you would never have said that Gerard is the most tactically uh, intelligent player in the world and I think the biggest thing for for Gerard in terms of his managerial career is he had a coach at Liverpool uh, uh, Michael Beale he's now the QPR uh, manager linked to the the Wolves job regionally he is a tactical genius he I've talked to people that rave at absolutely length about him and he very much appears to be, and you can certainly, if you base it on the evidence, when he was away from Gerard, the Gerard's teams struggled. Um, by all accounts, he's absolutely exceptional on the on the training ground, and brought. The, and maybe that is the perfect match. You know, you have the tactical brains behind it, and then you have the emotional and everything else that you that you can get. But in terms of to answer your question, there's there's nothing that uh, so far in his manager career that would even even line the two of them up aside from his playing career. and But from his, if, aside from Liverpool, Gerard, if he wants to continue with his manager career, and we've seen so many players or managers kind of step away and find it so hard to get back on the horse again, his next job is going to be crucial. You'd imagine he'll take a bit of time off because it did seem to get quite stressful there at the end. But it's it's an important big move for him, whatever way he goes next. Yeah, I was also watching Everton on uh, or at the weekend there, uh, beating Crystal Palace 3-0. Most notably, Seamus Coleman also having uh, Wilfred Zaha in his pocket, which was uh, quite welcome, especially, uh, you know, there's question marks about how a 34-year-old Coleman would kind of deal with playing at right back as opposed to right centre-back, but great performance from him. I might touch very briefly on the Ronaldo situation at Manchester United. A lot has been said by a lot of people, including Roy Keane, Gary Neville, and I think Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank seemed to be trying to get a word in at the weekend and couldn't but um, be that as it may um, I think more less so on what happened uh, against Spurs last week but more so um, Manchester United's form I mean they went to Chelsea and got a 1-1 draw with uh, Casemiro's late header but uh, Ten Hag's hand I guess in dealing with the Ronaldo situation Paul is very much strengthened by a slight upturn in form I mean there's still a work in progress but there seems to be uh, at least compared to when we were talking about the Brentford game at the start of the season, uh, at least uh, somewhat of an improvement. Yeah, I think their form's probably been been quite good over over the last kind of weeks and months. If you if you take away the the performance and result against Manchester City, so um, I think the players and I think the squad as a whole will, will rally behind Ten Hag and they'll believe in what it is he's trying to do. And uh, I mean the performances and results would would certainly suggest that they're moving in the right direction. I think. 
in hindsight, it's proven a very poor decision from the club not to let Ronaldo go. Uh, you know, when he was missing from preseason, I think he made it evident that he didn't want to be there. And I think once that happened, Ten Hag was, was certainly going to go a different direction. Um, and in order to to go that different direction, where he's going to need people behind him, and, and you can't have such a big name kind of pulling in the ups direction when you're trying to build and trying to gather momentum to close the gap on the top four. So, um, I think Manchester United have, have been going steadily quite well. Uh, they've been beating the teams kind of in, in the lower half of the table, and, and they've started to pick up points against the teams that you would expect are going to be there or thereabouts come the end of the season in, with regards to competing for for those Champions League positions. So, there's um. There's good signs there. I thought Casemiro was excellent on the weekend. The goal probably kind of summed him up his heart and tenacity in the middle of the pitch and just kind of never say die attitude and help them to get back over the line. But um, yeah, there's there's certainly there's good signs there. Um, a lot of that, I think, will depend on on keeping key people and key personnel fit. Uh, I think if Iran was to to be out for a period of time now with that hamstring injury, I think that could potentially kind of scope with him a bit because he's a really good understanding a partnership with Martinez there so um that isn't great but there's there's work to be done they certainly need to add a couple of players to that squad they certainly need to get Ronaldo out the door uh you would imagine in that Christmas window because you know good results against Tottenham and a good point against Chelsea and the first question Ten Hag has is <laughs> what's the story with Ronaldo so the sooner they kind of distance themselves from that um you know start building towards the future the better for Ten Hag yeah, where Ronaldo often gets mentioned shortly after, you'll often hear Messi's uh, name coming up and uh, vice versa. Now, I try and stay away from Twitter as much as possible. Um, but Since... I did one tweet I did see was yours, Paul, actually, I think, which was uh, just simply one word, Messi. And then I don't know what to call this emoji. Is it a exhaling emo- emoji anyway? It's a big cup <laughs> of, uh, <laughs> of breath coming out. But uh, you might explain, because I actually afterwards, I had a look at the uh, the what I was presuming you were referring to, which was the highlight of him and Mbappe um there was some there was some quality goals scored obviously this is PSG playing in a league which is probably uh sort of below their level but the the actual quality of the goals was brilliant the quality goal was was incredible I mean the performance in general and Messi this year for for people who don't watch the French League Messi has been incredible the front three of Neymar Mbappe and uh, Messi has, has somewhat started to click and uh, the game against Ajaccio on Friday night I was flicking between Shamrock Rovers and Pats and, and PSG and um, I mean he set Mbappe up for, for two goals with just like the most perfectly way to passes and the best decision making you can imagine in the final third but for his own goal I mean he's had a pullback from Bernat and he's played the most ridiculous one too with Mbappe that it looks like they're genuinely playing in a corporate five-a-side league, the, the way they go about it. And then Messi gets through one-on-one with the keeper. And as opposed to just slotting it by him, dummies it, sends the keeper to the ground and then just flicks it into the back of the net. And it's just like, I laugh when I, when I watch it because they're making professional footballers look so amateur. And uh, to be still doing it at this stage of his career is, is incredible. Maybe look 12 months ago, Raph, that, he was maybe on a bit of a decline and he didn't really seem happy at PSG. That's completely turned around. And I think you're getting a Messi now heading into this World Cup who's banging form and, and really looking to to kind of um, cement his his status as, as the best. And in order to do that, a lot of people say he needs to win a World Cup. And you can certainly see that there's, there's a hunger within him uh, and there's a form behind him that's suggesting that he's, he's going to be right out of come Qatar. Yeah, is um, it is it is it fate, Paul, that the Argentine will win the World Cup? You know, I mean, could, could this be the perfect ending for Messi? You know, like to, to cap everything off. 
I hope so. I, I absolutely love Messi. I love watching him play. Um, I watched France, I think, or I'm sorry, not France, Argentina against Italy, I think it was. Um, in it was either friendly, no, it was uh, the, 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 the Fina, Fina Lisi, yeah. man, isn't it? Between Lisi. The oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 and they were super, London. yeah, yeah, they were superb. But I think they had Martinez and they had Romero from Tottenham playing at the back, they have Rodrigo de Paul from Atletico Madrid, who looks a real player. They've got probably the back four and the midfield that they maybe didn't have in previous World Cups. Uh, like they've always had the, the attacking threats with Tevez, Aguero, Raquel May going back down through the years, Messi, Saviola, some great names there. They probably didn't have it at the back, and I think they have it this time round. And um, it, I think it would be such it would be such a good win and and such a um, a fitting win if Messi was was to go and do it because I think he's given so much to the game over the last 15, 20 years. Yeah, yeah, and that is obviously the World Cup on the pitch in terms of uh, Messi and Mbappe and the players we'll be we'll be watching as they uh, as they play in Qatar. We're going to obviously have live coverage of all the games, but also uh, there's a lot of scrutiny off the pitch. And uh, just last week, I was speaking to the um, Amnesty International's head of economic and social justice, Stephen Cockburn. So you can find that full piece on rt.ie/sport or watch the full interview also on YouTube. But here's a clip from it first. You know, we've been. Talking to FIFA about this, we first wrote to FIFA, um, to President Infantino five months ago. Um, we've not had a reply to that letter, so we've not been, um, we've not had an official reply to that. Um, we understand that they are considering it. Um, they said last week at a, at a meeting that there was something that they were seriously considering progressing. That was a vice president of FIFA. So we know it's being discussed. We know it's being raised with them. We know that others are raising it with them, whether that's sponsors or football associations as well. Um, but they've, you know, Four or five weeks left of the World Cup. They've not made an announcement. They've not made a commitment. Um, it's getting, it's got stuck somewhere. Uh, you know, it needs some leadership from from uh, Gianni Infantino to say we're going to do this. We don't need all the details. We don't need all. You know, we don't have to, an exact plan of how it works. But it's a commitment that we're going to do it. That we're going to set up an expert group. That we are going to study how the best way to to make this happen, and that they'll fulfil their responsibilities, um, and that we'll set aside some money for it. Um, uh, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful something will happen, but it, it, time is running out, and we do need to see leadership from FIFA because the, the, there's a huge momentum now calling for it. Whether it's from football fans, whether it's from sponsors, whether it's from football associations, from former players, um, and they're not responding yet, um, and we need to see more. Okay, and that is uh, Stephen Cockburn of Amnesty International. So that was uh, towards the end of last week, and what he's referring to there, and what the what. Amnesty and International and other human rights organizations are calling for is a compensation fund for the migrant workers who have been affected, either um, died in the building of stadiums or injured, and it's also to help the help the families. So their uh, Amnesty International are looking for a fund and for support for that fund. As of yet, FIFA have yet to announce anything. But before we go, um, Jim, just on a final point, because it's one of many pieces we've been doing on rt.ie slash sports just around the World Cup and uh also, especially off the field, I know you wrote a piece recently just about the preparations as well. I did, Raf. Yeah, I was looking at accommodation and I looked at various things. And obviously, since I wrote that piece, I think there's going to uh, FIFA or the organising committee have come up with sober zones for those who might have uh, engaged in a tipple too many. But yeah, I was just looking in terms of accommodation, like you I mean, um, 80. I think it's 80 up to 80 percent of the available rooms have been taken up by FIFA. Uh, so but they but they expect about 20,000 should become um, should uh, be out there just before the tournament starts. 
I'm just looking in terms of prices, just in, in and in terms of euros. I mean, I think the cheapest price to stay in the actual country itself would be about 81 euros a night. Uh, you, you can get places, uh, you can get places for 386 euros a night. You can get other campsites for about 193 euros a night. And uh, I think the most expensive place uh, is a beach villa on a place called Banana Island, which uh, would set you back about 2,900 euros a night. So, uh, you know, so there is quite a difference there between the various uh, various prices on offer. Uh, I think there also will be 160 daily shuttle flights between Doha and the UAE. So that's for people who don't actually want to stay in Qatar. Uh, to get about the country, I mean, it is quite small. It's about the size of Munster. So uh, so that's why, I mean, in terms of for fans, in terms of media, people will be able to see about two or three matches a day and a day pass to hop on their metro will only cost you about one. It costs one sixty uh, a day. So like that is that is, you know, actually quite cheap. And um, there, there will be fan zones uh, in the centre of uh, Doha, which can accommodate up to 40,000 people and they'll serve drink uh, between 6.30 p.m. and 1 a.m. every every day of the tournament. Uh, but if you do fancy a pint somewhere in the centre of town or, or in the centre of Doha, uh, some of the more expensive places uh, will cost you between 14 and 16 euros a pint. So uh, twice as bad as the prices that you're paying in Temple Bar. So that's just give, that's just some of the some of the um costs that will that will be involved uh if one is heading to the World Cup next month. So um we're gonna put all those pieces, your one and everything just as a link at the bottom of the description box on YouTube uh just under today's episode. Among them will be Beckham Silence and Step with Qatari, World Cup of Marta by our colleague Declan Welly as well. And that's just among many pieces that have been written and there will be more as well as we get closer to the World Cup. But uh, for this week anyway, uh, Jim, thanks a mil for, no uh, for coming on. And yeah. uh, Paul and Jonathan as well, thanks for uh, taking the time today. Cheers. Thanks, uh, Thanks a lot, lads. See you again.